Welcome to episode four of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I'm your host, Miles Taylor. I'm very excited to be doing this on Colin, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. This is going to be a big lead in today. Uh, I want to I want to give a proper introduction to our guest, former Congressman Denver Riggleman. You may know him as uh, a prolific tweeter, as someone who's former military intelligence, of course, a representative in the U.S. Congress from Virginia, highly outspoken, a small business owner. He runs a distillery in Virginia. He's a disinformation expert. He happens to be an advisor on the January 6th Select Committee in Congress. And I think most importantly, author of Bigfoot, It's Complicated, uh, a book which explains Denver's obsession with what he calls Bigfoot erotica. So, uh, look, Denver, you have a history of getting yourself in trouble on podcasts. So this is just a big trigger warning for everyone out there. I have no idea where our conversation is going to go, but I hope we can fully end Denver's career uh, by the end of this. So, Denver, welcome to the show. I have no idea what we're going to talk about. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Thanks for having me. And since I do have COVID pretty bad right now, this could be very dangerous. I just want everybody to know that. <laughs> the regular Denver Riggleman is uh, a genius and a loose cannon. And with COVID brain, this this could go anywhere. Uh, thrilled to have you. L- let's start with the obvious, most important thing here, Denver. Bigfoot erotica. What the hell does that mean? How did you get wound up in this? And, and why is that so closely associated with your name? Well, you know, I, I think I'm number one on Google Images um, when it comes to that. And, you know, I was on Saturday Night Live. But the reason it happened was a, was a campaign, right? When I first ran for Congress, I wasn't involved in politics much. And I never thought in a million years that writing a book about disinformation using Bigfoot as an avatar and how belief systems can control people. And I was writing this starting back in 2004. I never thought that a book like that would be used, a picture of me that was made by an army buddy of mine. I thought it'd be funny to do a very, my, how do I say this, Miles, a very provocative Bigfoot picture, putting my head on it in a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> with like a censored out phallus region, you know, would lead my opponent to say I was into Bigfoot erotica. The thing was, it's a disinformation tutorial because her daughter was Olivia Wilde. It spread, retweeted. I was number one on Twitter. I was uh, parodied or just crushed on Saturday Night Live on something that was absolutely a lie, just completely untrue. And uh, I just thought it was amazing that I was able to win despite that. But it also shows the power of disinformation and the power of crazy. And it also shows that Bigfoot voters are real because I still won. And I think they were very appreciative, you know, that I was protecting those uh, those free ways of thinking. But no, it, the whole thing was about belief systems and how they control people's lives. And then that book about disinformation was used as a lie against me to try to beat me in an election. It just shows you the dirty nature of politics. I mean, it was incredible. It was, it, it was like an inception level event that proved your whole thesis. Is, it proved you know, my very, thesis. Very smartly, you used you know, the, the absurd myth of Bigfoot to show how quickly disinformation spreads and how people can become obsessed with conspiracy theories. And then that was twisted in absurd ways to spread disinformation about you to attack you. I mean, you can't make this shit up. No, you can't. And but, you know, the thing is, is I made a lot of money for people. I think Pornhub had an 8000 percent increase in Bigfoot erotica searches, (laughs) which, you know, they called the Bigfoot, you know, the Riggleman bump. Right. So 
by the way, I just want to, again, I want to remind everybody I have COVID. So maybe all of this is, should not be admissible in a court of law as we're talking about this month. So yeah, we're, we're going to aggressively censor this uh, before we disseminate <laughs> it. I, I do want to ask you, I mean, on a serious note, because you are really a, 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 a national expert on disinformation. You've been doing this a lot during your career. You did it in the military and in intelligence. You worked in the Pentagon on disinformation issues. You continued to focus on it outside of government. Uh, we have a massive propaganda battlefield right now that is being waged with Russia and Ukraine. And I've been starting every episode talking about the subject because how can we not? I mean, we have a, a, a massive conflict on our hands, but the propaganda battlefield, tell us a little bit about this. I mean, just in the several weeks since the invasion has begun, there has been a flurry of crazy Russian propaganda, some of which is getting picked up here in the West by, you know, significant figures and elected leaders. It is. And I think it's I think there's something provocative about it. Not only, you know, do individuals sort of get wound up about it, it gives them a feeling of excitement and a feeling of belonging to something. I think the other part of this, which I've been trying to explain to people, Miles, that it's all about the money. And even if you look at a broad scale of what I'm doing now with the committee, you know, follow the money is very, very important. And as we go forward and you see the people that are parroting these lines or what they're doing with these lines or, you know, even as far as. And when you say prominent figures, Miles, I think you're not, you know, you're not uh, you're not talking about people that are big, you know, on Twitter or people that have podcasts. You're talking about major media figures like Tucker Carlson. Yep. And, you know, and I think I find it amazing that they're parroting things that have no basis in fact or. And here's what's amazing about disinformation or it has a small nugget of truth. And then that truth is either flipped or it's exaggerated or it's t <clears throat> taken out of context in order to try to prove or say something that is that that to somebody who's not practiced or somebody who doesn't look into the sourcing can easily think that maybe this is true and run with it. And I think Jen Griffin from Fox News did a great job just trying to explain the biolabs issue the other day. Right. And the fact that that talking about the United States or Ukraine, you know, conducting biological warfare, right, was completely ridiculous on its face when you actually know the facts. The thing is, again, Miles, is that disinformation is so powerful because there's money behind disinformation, massive amounts. And I'm not talking about hundreds of millions. I'm talking about billions of dollars behind the disinformation grip. But there's also this almost feeling that you belong or that you have some kind of private information that other people don't have. It's almost religious in nature. I think it's almost messianic or apocalyptic in nature. And I think I think that's a turn on to a lot of people. Well, let's talk about that one issue that you raised, the recent one this week. For folks who don't know about it, you know, it's the Russian government has been spreading information that the United States is working in Ukraine on potentially deploying chemical and biological weapons. Now, this was quickly called out here in the West. I, I believe in the past 24 hours, you know, U.S. intelligence agencies have signaled to the press that they think the Russians are spreading this disinformation to use it as a pretext for deploying their own chemical and biological weapons in the conflict zone. So in other words, a, a false flag operation. We've seen this a couple of times. I mean, as a former intelligence officer, I'd be curious to get your take. Normally, false flag operations work because people accept the disinformation and then the bad guys go out there and say, this is why we have to do X. But we've seen actually something pretty impressive over the past few weeks, which is the US government has quickly been releasing intelligence it's gathering, basically calling out these false flag operations before they happen. I mean, the Russians were going to fake an attack in Ukraine uh, against their forces to then justify the invasion. 
the you know U.S. officials released that intelligence and, and called them out and said we we think they're preparing a fake attack. This keeps happening where we're trying to get ahead of the Russians by exposing their plans. I rarely saw that in government because it takes so long to downgrade intelligence. Should we be impressed by that? Do you think it's had an impact on Russia's behavior? I think it has. And I was impressed by it also because, you know, what I've said in the past, Miles, I think the simplest, um, almost the easiest to believe, you know, almost the simpleton conspiracy theory is the false flag theory, right? And you know, when you look at, you know, 9-11 truthers, when you look at 1-6 truthers, when you look at individuals who thinks that the Antifa or the FBI and Ray Epps were somehow, you know, the provocateurs of January 6th, you can almost link this. There's, there's a real corollary between what we think are false flag theories by people who are conspiracy theorists and then actual state actors who want to use that. Right. And we have the intelligence to say that. And, you know, I find it amazing uh, to me, that a lot of those that claim conspiracy theories are false flags are the ones that are sort of Russian sympathizers who would actually do something like this. I mean, the the irony there is is almost, you know, it's just delicious um, when you see these type of things. And I just find it amazing, you know, that we were able to roll that quickly in the intelligence community out with actual facts and data. And my guess is it's backed up with some pretty good sourcing that Russia was willing to do something like this. And we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, if you go back to 1919, if you go back to the Communist International, if you go back to Russian tactics in the past, this isn't a surprise to anybody. But I think it's also that little nugget of truth that allows, you know, crazies in this country to think that our own government would conduct a false flag specifically, right, against our own capital on January 6th. Now, don't get me wrong. We have some bad things in our history, brother. Trust me. But what I'm saying is that it's just a very easy thing to go into as false flag conspiracy theories at home because it's such a simple thing to be duped by. But it also can be very effective if you're Russia thinking they're going to be away with it. So it's just a really interesting thing to me to study both sides of that coin. Well, tell us this, because the more we call out Putin, the more it probably uh, feeds the old adage that a cornered beast can be dangerous. I mean, we're, you know, whether it's economically uh, militarily or, or when it comes to the propaganda wars, starting to push Putin more and more into a corner. If you can make predictions about where this goes with Putin, what do you think the end game is for him? And should we be worried about him doubling and tripling down? Yeah, I, I think uh, at this point he's in a pretty bad position. Um, I, I don't see a way out unless he doubles or triples down or, right, there's um, there's some kind of I don't know, brokered piece in the meantime, that's a long-term sort of just slogging condition where they're, you know, honestly, where they're occupying parts of Ukraine um, as peace talks are happening. And, you know, a lot of people are, I, I think they're putting out their miles that, you know, Putin's lost his mind, that, you know, maybe he's, you know, maybe he's ill. You know, we have all these things that people are talking about that's sort of in the information ecosystem. You know, what I would what I would just caution people about is that in some respects, we don't know the exact mindset of Putin, right? If you look at Soviet history, uh, we find that, this, again, this isn't incredibly special. It's not incredibly unique. But I will say that I do believe at the expense of not having some kind of confrontation that could be very bad worldwide or globally, I think at some point, sadly, we might be some kind of brokered peace in Ukraine as they negotiate. That's a long term slog, you know, for the West against, you know, against Russia. And and I hope it doesn't get to that where there is a brokered peace like that. But, um, 
you know, or a brokerage ceasefire that's, you know, uh, you know, so often interrupted, you know, by Ukraine trying to rout out those, you know, who invaded them. But it just it just frightens me um, and concerns me um, where Putin might go with this. And so I think I don't know if I'm in a course of action with an intelligence officer, an awful brokered piece where they get to say in some parts of Ukraine, which I hope that doesn't happen. I think it's most likely. Um, if you go down the course of action list, I think it's, is Putin going to all of a sudden say, oh, I was wrong. I'm going to leave now. That's not going to happen. So, um, so that's some of the things that bothers me. Well, let's bring it back home here because, you know, we're witnessing, of course, the, the push of one of the planet's biggest anti-democratic forces, the Russian federal government into a sovereign country. But at the same time, we're seeing anti-democratic forces course through our politics and the veins of our political system. And that's a big concern at the moment. And it's something that you've been very vocal about. I mean, that's why we wanted to have you on Speaking Up. You were pretty unafraid as a member of Congress and after Congress to go out there, call out the disinformation, point out the authoritarian influences in the American political system, uh, and and again, fight that. And of course, you're, you're doing that on the January 6th uh, select committee by trying to get to the truth and you know push away the cobwebs of of this disinfo. What do you think the state of play is here? Uh, are we in a better spot or a worse spot than we were in let's say 2020 when it comes to the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories in the United States? Worse. I I don't you know I think uh, I think what's happened you know I've I've talked about this a lot is that I think now that you have this sort of baseline of provable um, victimhood uh, by people in certain parts of our political dynamic, you know, the far right or the MAGAverse, whatever you want to call it. And listen, the fringes seem to have this ability to, to crush victimhood with conspiracies. That's what they do. But I think having political prisoners now, we you know, where we have, you know, individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene saying we're having those that, you know, are treated like those in Gitmo, you know, the people that were arrested for January 6th are being detained. When you have a when you now have a martyr in Ashley Babbitt, uh, when you have a president who a lot of people believe is a president in exile, when you have the amount of money that's being pushed into the MAGA ecosystem for messaging, when you have individuals, you know, riding around the truckers convoy or the type of messaging that you have there, I think a lot of that is um, a real issue. Um, Denver, I think I think you should consider answering that phone call, bringing that person into the conversation. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I, I just. That would be I, I the original believe. call in uh, radio uh, show. I, I'm so sorry about that. You know, it's, it's sad that I, I have four phones. I mean, that what kind of human being has four phones unless you're somebody I'm tracking right now? I'm just kidding. That's a joke. But but I think, um, you know, I'm just kidding. That, there were so many jokes in there that me and you, Miles, know about that I can't even oh, go into. Oh, can't um, even go there. Also, I think what's more there. interesting for listeners right now is you have a fucking landline. Uh, well, is that because you're out there in the Virginia Hills? It is because I'm in the Virginia Hills and also a landline, you know, is a redundant comms path. Right. So um, <laughs> I don't I know. know you'd school I, me there. Uh, <laughs> this, yeah, so, you've no. got better continuity of operations than here at my house. We're totally dependent on Verizon. Verizon goes yeah. down. We're toast. Always have a coop plan, Miles. Always have a coop plan, you know, and, uh, you know, I think, sorry, we got so far off bounds right there as we were talking because of a, of a phone line. But we were talking about, you know, the issue is, is that the message has been very, you know, messaging doesn't matter as long as it, it's it's targeted at the amygdala. And I think right now that the amygdala targeting uh, from far right messaging and conspiracy theories is really on point. You don't have to be consistent 
to make somebody feel like they're special or they're fighting for a cause, a good against evil cause. And I think that that has really been perfected. And I think the money behind it is very effective. I think if you look at the cash coffers from President Trump and Mar-a-Lago, uh, when you're looking at the cash that's being brought in by certain types of fundraising groups, when you look at NRCC fundraising or specific fundraising from people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gates or Boebert, I think you're seeing that it is very effective ecosystem. I mean, think about Wendy Rogers and her fundraising out in Arizona. Um, this stuff, I think, is worse because I think the people that are really hooked to it have been more radicalized. Um, and I think the, the, the quantity over quality argument might not make sense here because those that have been radicalized are controlling pretty large swaths of individuals who are sort of rolling behind them. And I think we have a real issue coming up in the 2022 midterms because of that. We, look, you've been on the receiving end of this. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. when, you were, when you were a member of Congress, I mean, tell us about that. I don't want to have to fully relitigate re, re, re the past, but a lot of listeners probably don't know, you know, the roadshow you had to go through with, you know, all, all sorts of wild accusations on the campaign trail after, you know, you had officiated a same-sex wedding of friends, and it turned into a frenzy in the election, which sort of exemplified some of these things you're saying about where are the state of American politics. Well, it was brutal. You know, it's brutal what happened to those that I married, uh, two dear individuals. It was brutal that, you know, I did a same-sex wedding, but a problem that a lot of people had was an interracial same-sex wedding, if you could believe it. And, you know, I had individuals tell me at the beginning that it wasn't so fact that I married two men. I had one person say that, you know, why did it have to be a black and white man? And that got to be a very hostile conversation that I had with that wow. individual. Um, and, you know, the other thing, too, is that right after the gay wedding, I knew things had gone off the rails when I was called the tool of the Antichrist. That's usually an indicator in the intelligence business. Um, you know, a tool or, of the Antichrist on the campaign trail. On the campaign trail. I was also called to my face. I had an individual, a uh, little sawed off individual um, come up to me and down, I think it was in Halifax County came up and called me the general of the sodomite armies and uh, and said he had read, you know, that I was being supported by George Soros and he's screaming at me. And there's 40 or 50 people there. And I said, excuse me, what did you say? And he goes, I, I read that you have done awful things and that you're supported by Soros. You're a secret Democrat. You know, that's be the that's the worst thing you can be called as a Republican, by the way. I don't know if people know that. So I just looked at him. I said, oh, you can read. And that that it escalated from there. So. Um, so, I mean, that's some of the things that I had to deal with, but also the fact, I didn't know if you know this, Miles, you might want to write this down. Uh, we were money, money laundering democratic funds to our distillery. Um, that was also happening. I, oh, oh, by the way, I was also, you trying, should be prosecuted. I should be. I was also trying to change the sexual orientation of children. Um, just to let you know that too, based on the fact that I did a, uh, you know, that I officiated a same sex wedding. Um, but being secretly funded by George Soros and in the pejorative, which is also awful because, you know, QAnon is necessarily it is anti-Semitic. I was called a secret Jew. Um, and so these were the things this was commonplace. Uh, this isn't something that was this was commonplace. And I also knew that they had paid a pastor to go to churches after he tried to shake me down for money. I refused to pay him. He got paid by the good campaign to go to churches and spread some of this filth. And so and then when I was up in polling for primaries, they changed it to a convention in a church by my opponent's house in a district bigger than New Jersey. And only twenty five hundred people voted out of a district of seven hundred fifty thousand. So what happened was the, the powers to be, um, whether you want to call them far right, uh, whatever you want to call them with some bizarre beliefs, 
I was taken out uh, because of that wedding. And, and it, and it, and then they had to change the rules in a way because they had to disenfranchise as many people as possible. And, you know, looking back on it, probably one of the most liberating and bitter experiences simultaneously in my life. Um, you know, I really hated Congress miles, probably the worst two years of my life. I've had, I've been to cooler parties and had better jobs, trust me, than Congress. And, you know, and I think, uh, I think what happened to me was I honestly thought, even with all that going on, that I was above politics, that somehow through performance or maybe if I kept some of my integrity um, and I made votes I hated, too. After the gay wedding, especially, you know, I was told, you know, you're done. Right. Unless you can prove that you're you know, conservative. Think about that. It's just ridiculous. And, you know, but I but I tell you, I still thought after all that, if I could raise enough money, if I could do the right things that I would still be elected based on performance. And what I found is that integrity and performance are mutually exclusive from political messaging in an ecosystem that values fantasy over facts. And that has been, that has been, that was a huge, something else I had to learn and also incredibly humbling after all my years in disinformation, I had to relearn again how strong money is or messaging or manipulating the system to get out a message that's untrue and how that can lead to votes and wins. And, it's something we need to fight every day, you know, as a body politic. Well, and, and even more than vitriol or changing people's votes, uh, this misinformation leads to violence. And Certainly. you were a canary in the coal mine on that long before people were talking about things like insurrections in the United States. You know, you, even before being a member of Congress, saying that these types of conspiracy theories, if brought into the mainstream, uh, could result in danger. And, I, and I'll never forget one of the episodes that really made it hit home almost literally for me is one of my favorite pizza places in Washington is a place called Comet Ping Pong, which through a bizarre series of QAnon posts was alleged to be a location where the Democrats were sexually abusing children in their basement, including, I think, Hillary Clinton, as the conspiracy theory went. Forget the fact that Comet Ping Pong doesn't have a basement. This spread far and wide to the point that a QAnon believer showed up with a gun to go, quote, free the children from the basement and fired off, I think, a couple of rounds and got arrested uh, there at the pizza place. You know, it was a great example, a terrible example, but a, a very, you know, concise one of how these crazy conspiracies can lead to violence. We, of course, saw that on massive scale on January 6th when, you know, Donald Trump said, the election was stolen and exhorted followers to go, you know, stop the transition of power. And it led to a, a very violent episode in the heart of our nation's capital. Do, do you see, Denver, a direct correlation between this rhetoric and violent actions? It's actually a call and response, Miles. And I know you know this and you probably just smiled, um, but it's a call and response. You know, people are conditioned to certain types of language. And then, then when they get a go order, or what they define as a go order you know, something like that could be quite um, empowering and, and also violence inducing. I mean, you know, a lot of people talked about the December 19th tweet by President Trump. It's going to be wild, right, as a go order, right, as a call and response. Um, and there's there's a time, I think, that we're going to have data that comes out about that, you know, that I can't discuss at this point. And so when you look at these things, I think there's a, not only a direct correlation, right, when you talk about a correlation, I think there's actually an activity associated with it. And as you know, you know, you've done a lot of counterterrorism work when you when you're looking at call and response or the ability to radicalize people in mass, you know, based on their ability to access multiple digital channels. 
this should scare the hell out of people. You know, a lot of people, Miles, that's why your question is so brilliant here. It's not what should really scare people isn't the fact that they're maybe, you know, what if there's this massive behind the scenes command and control infrastructure, right, that happened on January 6th, that there were so many intertwined sort of individuals that were planning for this, that that should scare the hell out of people. No, no, no. What should scare people is that many people were able to be called up or radicalized to do what they did based on almost an algorithmic squeeze of social media and fundraising, right? And the fact that money being pumped into the ecosystem could do these type of things to, to people that otherwise might behave normally or have normal beliefs. And, you know, that's why, again, when you ask a question like that, Miles, there's a brilliance to that because um, people need to realize that that money, right, the, the ability to get to groups, the ability to keep something going all the way from Comet Ping Pong, all the way from Hillary Clinton, all the way through the creation you know, of Q. And by the way, Q isn't even that great of a clearance. It pisses me off, right? Why couldn't it be called, <laughs> you know, why couldn't it be called SAP, right? Or, you know, ECI or something, you know? But anyway, so. Sorry, you and I were it. both holders of, of real Q clearances, which, which is basically is public information. It's a, it's a clearance for access to U.S. nuclear information. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think I ever saw anything interesting with a Q clearance because I don't know anything about nukes and and nuclear physics, and and there would be no point in sharing Q clearance information with me, even when I had it. You know, maybe the cover term was Comet Ping Pong, and we missed that. You know, and <laughs> you know, so, but um, you know, but you know, that's the that's the issue is we've had these clearances, and for people to think that somehow somebody has some secret information that nobody has hold of, and they and they get to they get to they get to translate it. You know, they get to they get to look through the through the through the you know look through the detritus of the country and look at the crazy stuff that's underneath the you know underneath the ground right in the in the roots and they know things other people don't that is a hugely sexy thing to some people it is very exciting you know and and now you have all these people who still believe in the vestiges of comet ping pong and i know we've come full circle here but the stuff like comic ping pong leads to january 6 because there is a socialization a radicalization that happens over time. And then there's something that lights the fire. And you know what? The biggest thing, Miles, and I, and I know a lot of people probably miss this, and you're probably going to go, oh, my God, Denver, was the Nashville bombing. You know, a guy who believes reptilian humanoids, you know, goes and he tries to, you know, light up a phone switch, right, and blows up a city block. That should have been a freaking warning, you know? And, you know, I just, I just stand. We might have lost you for just a second there. Oh, Jeff. sorry, buddy. I'm here. I no, that was very, very odd. Sorry about that, man. I did. The uh, you were on the uh, yeah the Nashville bomber and the the whole reptilian humanoid thing. I mean, Have could you been... dive a little bit deeper into that for us for folks who've forgotten that one? Yeah. So what you had was you had an individual in Nashville um, who went out there. And he um, he blew up a city block in a truck. I don't know if you remember the story about the police officers who saw that there was a warning there. And this this guy, you know, actually thought that maybe the country was controlled um, by reptilian humanoids. Right. His name was was it Anthony Warner. Right. And uh, what's incredible is that, you know, he was a guy who probably had some issues back, you know, in the day. But he took out, you know, really a, a city block. I think he injured, you know, multiple people, you know, eight people. You know, when he was doing that, and this was the thing that really got my attention, right, is that downtown Nashville in the early mornings, Christmas, boom, 
He bombs things. And I think people need to understand, right, that these type of individuals, one person can do a lot of damage if they have that kind of background in building bombs or building devices. And um, that's why it scared me, uh, is that we had somebody who had actually been radicalized through conspiracy theories that thought he needed to bomb, you know, what, what they thought was bombing an AT&T switch. Well, in Denver, I'm going to have us take a couple of caller questions here in a second, but it- this is the perfect example. I'm so glad you brought up Nashville, uh, you know, and for folks who didn't, uh, you know, don't remember that case. I mean, look, this is a legitimate terrorist attack propagated by someone who believed that a race of reptilian beings not only invaded the planet, but that they created a genetically modified lizard human hybrid race called the Babylonian Brotherhood. That was the theory. And, and there's, thousands if not tens of thousands or more of adherence to this theory around the world and it's one thing if they're just crazy people but quite another if they want to go conduct attacks on civilians because of it um i'm going to take a question here from chris and uh then we'll go on to a few others chris uh feel free to uh jump in hey guys uh thanks a lot both miles and denver um I, I didn't have a prepared question, but you know, a, a lot of what Denver is saying is kind of been sticking in my crawl for for a long time, really since 2015. But just the the level of of uh, cultishness around the you know you talk about conspiracy theories and and everything going around you know with Comet Pizza and and all this other uh, crazy accusations and beliefs and just the the sheer I, I really question their level of, of, if not intelligence, just their rationalization about this. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm really worried about it when we got 74 million people that would vote for something, someone who over the last four years has done so much to undermine the very fabric of our democracy. You know, and, and what happens in 2022 and 2024, you know, when we get these elections that are now you know, just, you know, on, on the, just running on a knife's edge in terms of the tipping the balance between actual democracy and participation and just this hard right view of the legislature that wants to just, you know, change the outcome of an actual open and fair election. I just wanted to get yeah, your yeah. thoughts on that. Yeah. Thank, th- um, thanks, Chris. And, and Denver, if I could just add to that, Chris, I think that's a great question. Would love in your answer to know, Denver, what you think the long-term implications are of things like the big lie. You know, there's a lot of historical analogies that you and I have talked about before, but would love your perspective on that. Oh, goodness. So a couple of things. Um, you know, the first part in going into the big lie, my biggest fear, and I'm not even saying this in a joking way, Miles or Chris, uh, my biggest fear is a violent idiocracy, right? And what you're talking about, not even being able to have a, I can't even have a conversation with somebody about, you know, real foreign policy or domestic policy, because they do believe that Comet Ping Pong was a thing, right, Miles and Chris? I mean, that's the issue with me, um, is what do you do with that? As far as the big lie, that is just a continuation, right, of some of these things that people might believe. And I don't want to get myself in too much trouble trouble here, Miles, but I might be uh, as I go into this. Um, but I think those people that are really bent or, or have a, a specific and very powerful belief in the supernatural – seem to be those who sort of are attracted to these type of conspiracy theories. You know, if you go, 
you know, if you talk about Nashville, so this is all coming together now. If you talk about Nashville, how violent is it for somebody to bomb something because they believe in the reptilian conspiracy theory? Or they have this explosive thing. If you just go to, you know, go to the wiki and you look at the fact is, is that he had sort of this bomb in his soul of believing in 9-11 conspiracy theories, moon landing conspiracy theories, reptilian conspiracy theories, UFO conspiracy theory. I mean, that is that is a that's a toxic brew. Right. And and the fact is, if you're wrapped up in those belief systems, why is it would be so hard to believe that there's 50 states with hundreds of thousand people that participate in a conspiracy to overthrow the election? Why is it so hard to believe that seven to eight foreign countries were involved? Right. Why is that? Why is that so hard? Why is it so hard to believe, you know, that Donald Trump has actually been ordained by God? So now you have all of this as a toxic brew and it just builds up to, to, to anger. You know, which is exactly the opposite of what a lot of people believe in, you know, say Christian or, or Islam or anything about the peaceful portion of religion. And now all of a sudden you have all these people who think it's a battle against good and evil because, you know, Denver Riggleman is actually a reptilian guy. Right. Uh, part of the Babylonian Brotherhood. He funnels money through his distillery for George Soros. He's trying to change the sexual orientation of children. He's a general in the Sodomite army and he's the actual tool of the Antichrist. Then they called my wife the spawn of Satan. And I finally told somebody, we're the most powerful couple in Virginia. I mean, you know, so, um, you know. Denver, I do realize now I gave you the wrong introduction. We, we should have just introduced you exactly that way. And I'm sorry that we gave the, the wrong bio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Miles, you got to do more research on this stuff, you know. And But Chris's question, it's not, it's just the fear that you can't have a normal conversation with somebody. And if you can't do that. If you have somebody like a Lauren Boebert or a Marjorie Taylor Greene, who just what, yesterday or two days ago, talked about her belief in the Great Reset conspiracy theory two, two days ago. I mean, look, can, yeah. can we put that? How do you have a normal conversation about what to do in Ukraine? How do you have a normal conversation about foreign policy in South America? How do you have a normal conversation about tax policy in the United States, right, or energy policy? If somebody honestly believes that 9-11 was an inside job, how do you even have a serious conversation about anything? And it's a great response to Chris's question, Denver. I think none of us are going to soon forget your prophecy about a, a violent idiocracy. Uh, I want to take a, a couple more listener questions if we can before we wrap. So uh, next, I'm going to go to uh, Hannah. Hannah, you have been invited to speak. I think you can unmute in the lower right hand of your app. Thank you so much. Technologically challenged. Um, hi. So my question is, so I'm a, a Republican who is very uh, strong in the belief that January 6th was a terrorist attack um, perpetuated by Donald Trump. So I um, I want to know, as, as a member of the January 6th committee, um, I'm you know, I tend to be wary of committees that are controlled by one party. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on how, you know, some examples of how this will be a unifying um, committee and, and the work that you're doing, how both parties can can learn from it. And just that partisanship has been put to bed. I'm looking for you to kind of assuage my fears of a committee that's controlled by one party. I know it was the Republicans who decided not to participate, but if you could just share a little bit about some bipartisan areas and some, some areas that we could all get behind um, of your work on the committee. 
No, great question. And thanks. That's somebody calling about probably the committee now. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yes, my phones just keep going off here. The, the bad phone uh, is on fire. The today. bad phone, my God, it's on fire. You know how many times call that landline? Probably in a week, one. And now I've had two calls in the last, you know, I, I'm so sorry, Miles. Um, but Hannah, for your question, I think really what you got is you got to look beneath, you know, uh, the individuals or the committee members, the electeds underneath, and what the committee chose as individuals and those are the investigators. Uh, unbelievable group of individuals, all, you know, AUSAs, many of them independents, uh, many of them really not involved in politics at all. I mean, even me as the senior technical advisor, I've had to explain even politics, you know, in a very basic sense when it comes to specific types of committees and districts, uh, how primaries and conventions work and things like that. These guys are just investigators, these guys and gals, and they're fantastic. They just don't give a rats about politics. All they're doing is looking at the evidence. And I think that's, if I could assuage anybody out there, it's the, the sort of the ethical push that many of these people have. And they become some of my favorite people. Um, and that's and it's something that I had the same kind of let me tell you, I was worried, uh, you know, when I went in as, you know, one of the uh, only Republicans behind the door. But I can tell you this is that the people that I've met there, their integrity, uh, their ethics, but their acumen in doing an investigation right through interviews and through gathering evidence is is just fantastic. The thing that I've got in for is this is a little different than anything ever done in Congress. I think this is the biggest data effort in the history of Congress. I think we have, when you look at what we're looking at, we're looking at more data in ones and zeros than any committee has ever looked at. And it's historic in that way. That's why I'm there. Um, I would never say that I'm an expert, you know, in the attorneys or that type of investigative path. My background was counterterrorism and data. But from what I've seen from the individuals, it's not the electeds that are doing the investigation. It's the people that have been actually identified and hired by the committee. And many of those are people that had never been involved in politics and have done some incredible things on the investigative side. So hopefully that helps. Well, that, that's a really helpful overview, Denver. And, and I remember, you know, when the makeup of the committee was announced, uh, there were folks on the right who, you know, screamed that there really weren't any Republicans there. Well, look, I mean, obviously Liz Cheney, is a stalwart, rock-ribbed Republican, Adam Kinzinger, the same. But there's not just two uh, Republican members of Congress. Uh, a lot of folks failed to note that Denver Riggleman, former Republican congressman, was joining as a senior advisor to the committee. I mean, there really is a, a bipartisan ethos to this effort. And, you know, I haven't detected a, a whiff of partisanship in terms of how the investigation itself is being conducted. Certainly, um, you know, the committee's work has been politicized by people for their own agendas. But it, but it seems like behind the scenes, y'all are just chasing the facts. Yeah. And it's such a hard nut to crack. Right. Because, you know, Congress does not have the authorities. And you know this, Miles, you know, DOJ, they're going to have access to more things than we do and more data. We're very limited on what we can ask for and what we can parse and analyze. It, it, it makes it a, it's a very challenging endeavor. And you have to have some pretty savvy individuals to get through it. I do count myself as fairly savvy. And, um, but on the other hand, you have to have investigators that uh, their, their, their ethics, uh, I would say, and their integrity are unquestioned. And we have those types of individuals. Um, for me, as being Denver Riggleman, right, I think I'm the king of the thankless jobs uh, at this point. Um, this has been, you know, it's interesting. You know, I'm watching, you know, uh, out there as people are, you know, able to do so many things to try to get the message out. And I and I, when I went to the committee, I told them that I would be very careful, wouldn't do press, but make sure that I didn't mention committee things as far as what we're finding. And I won't. I just refuse to do it. But I can talk about the integrity of the people. 
I can talk about their ethical prowess, right, and their investigative prowess, and 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 how good they are, and the fact that they're 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 troubled, uh, and they work sometimes 15, 16 hours a day, and they just want to do what's right. And to be honest, you know, I've been the one sometimes like, come on, let's go, let's be more aggressive. And like Denver, we you know we can't be more aggressive. We have to make it right. I'm the guy, right, because I wasn't I wasn't in law enforcement. I was in counterterrorism. Um, and that is a big difference in the way that you look at an investigation. They look at this as an investigation. I look at it as an operation. And you know, Miles, that's a big difference, right? That's uh, that's just a different mindset. So I think that's why we worked well together. Um, is that I can get, you know, I can look at a lot of the data and make sense of it. But again, I can talk about, you know, how, you know, I would say um, how good some of these investigators are and how thorough they are. And I think I can talk about that. And I'm going to say that that they are. Um, so there you go, Miles. Uh, but as far as me being behind the door, it's, it's just interesting because they still, I think, look at me sometimes sideways like, man, he's, he's a little different, right? He's, <laughs> you know, I mean, not, not different in a bad way, Miles. You know, it's not like the weird guy in the corner at a discotheque, right? Uh, but um, but, but yeah, you were it, that guy at points in your life. Uh, well, of course. I mean, I mean, I can really dance. I mean, don't get me wrong. But, <laughs> um, but I have been, especially in politics, because, you know, I had made a reputation myself, you know, as a former CEO of a tech company, I did really well when I sold it, uh, you know, I sort of pulled myself up, uh, you know, I have 58, I've done great in my life, I have an incredible family, I came from nothing, so it was really surprising in politics as a backbencher, I'm looking around at these under individuals going, they couldn't hold my jockstrap, you know, they, they, you know, who, who are these people that got elected, I'm like, there's no way that some of these individuals are actually you know, what they're portraying right now, they got to be smarter behind closed doors, right? Um, no, no, that is not the case. Politics, what were they like behind closed doors? I think even more strident, um, even more sort of set in their views rather than being willing to negotiate the realness, the reality of what they believe came out behind closed doors, which horrified me. Um, you know, it horrified me. Uh, I thought, they had to do what they had to do out front to get elected in some cases, but some of them actually believed it and were more radicalized than those people in the base that were saying some of those crazy things. Now, obviously, there's some that just go along to get along. Don't get me wrong. They are. But there are true believers in there. And I think people need to realize that sometimes what people say is actually what they mean. And I know that's hard in politics because, uh, you know, sometimes when a politician opens their mouth, you automatically assume they're lying. Uh, but I think you do have to see if somebody shows you who they are, you probably need to accept it. And I think that's what horrified me a little bit. Well, I, I appreciate Denver. You, uh, of course, respecting the integrity of the January 6th investigation. We won't press you on anything. And I know you wouldn't answer, but there is a, you've got a little fan base out there of people on Twitter who are Riggleman watchers and, and they read into cryptic tweets after you end your day, have a glass of whiskey and, and put on a record album, you know, and, and tell us what records you're listening to. Folks are trying to parse whether that means something about how the investigation is going. Should we be reading into your music choices on Twitter as insight into the investigation, or should we just be uh, imagining you as the next Rolling Stone? Well, I'm wondering, you know, my friend, that makes me laugh by the way that you just said that, but um you know, my friend, that if I said that, it would sort of take away the mystery, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, and the list know, of followers goes up. Well, I mean, the thing is this, is that there are times where music should speak to people, I think, in a way 
um, because I'm a huge music nut um, and probably because I was a child of the 80s. Right, Miles. And, um, you know, I was born in 70. So, you know, growing up during, you know, Motley Crue and Ronald Reagan sort of gives you a, a weird a weird world. Right. A really real world, you know, and, you know, going over and listen to your, you know, your friend's Black Sabbath albums and then your grandfather, you're looking, listening to Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues by Danny O'Keefe. Right. So your whole world becomes very eclectic. But, yeah, there are some times, you know, where the music is reflecting maybe, maybe, maybe my mood and what I'm doing. And well, so so know. tell me this, uh, you know, as as we close it out here, what are you rocking to these days? What's been oh what's been on the uh, what's been on the iPod and or Spotify or whatever you're using? Well, I think part of it is uh, ain't wasting time no more. Listen, Almond Brothers band has always been one of my things, right? But I like to go sort of deep sometimes, you know, to old Oasis, right? Or you know, a Warriors Call by Volbeat. I don't know if anybody listens to Volbeat, right? Or Dead But Rising, right? I was ready for this, as you know. Chop suey just a little <laughs> down, right? Is something. But but if anybody, you know, it, it, what I'm scared of when I tell people my music, you know, they'll be like, "What the hell?" You know, how does he like this and that? You know, but um, I, you know, Painkiller by Judas Priest, right? All the way to Space Age Love Song by A Flock of Seagulls. I mean, I got so much going on. But right now, I've really been into uh, Harry Nelson. He's been sort of my guy right now. Um, so anything from everybody's talking to jump into the fire, everybody's talking from Midnight Cowboy, the movie, as you know, with Dustin Hoffman and John Boyd. So he's sort of been my thing the last few days, but also listen to some really old stuff by Tool. Um, and I don't even want to say it because I think people would think I'm the Tool, the Antichrist, if I talk about listening to Tool. Um, but, you know, just finding some old songs by Incubus and Tool, but Incubus and Tool. But Harry Nelson's been my jam lately, my friend. Denver Riggleman, a, a sonic tour de force. Uh, we've not managed to get you in trouble by elicit, eliciting anything uh, non-public. So I, I want to try to get you in trouble by asking, uh, you mentioned Oasis. Are they going to get together and do a reunion tour? Do you think that's ever going to happen? You know, as an intelligence analyst, that's a very difficult, very difficult. But I think money will bring them together eventually. I'm going to say yes. Money. Money will bring us together. I think that's probably the title of your that's... coffee table book. <laughs> it is everything. <laughs> if you think about the last motive of every person, the first and last, and people's like, Denver, you're an evil, cynical man. But if you even think about your days and what you want to do in life, money is a primary or the primary motivator for so many. And so whenever you're worried about a motive or you need a starting place in your analysis, follow the money. It uh, for for those who loved or hated this movie, they'll maybe remember the quote in Vanilla Sky. One of the lead characters says, "What's the answer to ninety nine out of a hundred questions? Money, money." Uh, well, we hope that you guys are following the money over there on the committee. We're we're grateful for your public service, Denver. And uh, in parting, I'll ask you this: one, we hope you get better and recover from the bout of COVID. But two. Can uh, people expect to see you uh, in public office again one day at any point? Is your mind open to that or is the door closed? Dead air, Denver. We just had dead air after I asked that question. <laughs> it almost sounded like myself on fire. Um, there we go. We're not all the building and for office again, but I will say this. 
We just we just got you back, Denver. We had uh, we had. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, buddy? Yeah. Hey, Miles. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Miles? There we go. Yeah, I got you. Weird. That dead air was not purposeful. I was talking the whole time. Denver, I could not have. I could not have asked for a better moment in a podcast than asking you if you would ever run for public office again, and then the signal just cuts and it's just it's just dead air. Which I think is how you should answer that in the future: is just close your lips. And just it, nothing, crickets. <laughs> Miles, I'm so sorry. I was talking. I was actually saying things. And uh, finally, I'm like, oh, my God. You're not editing that out, by the way. I want people to, I want listeners to have the same experience of, oh, shit, he's refusing to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to tell you this, man. I just want you to know that uh, I appreciate you. And, uh, you know, when you did ask that, I said I would rather jump off a building. But I do think um, that people <laughs> that hate politics have to be involved. Um, and, and it's, I despise it. I, I, it was one of the worst two years of my life. It was the worst two years of my life. And, but I, I will say this, it was also one of the biggest learning times of my life. And that is allowing me to be in a position I am today. I think maybe to make a difference. I don't know who knows until it's all done. But if, 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 if it looks like something I need to do, I'll do it. I, I just, I just despise it so much, but I think people that hate it need to do it. Well, Denver Riggleman, uh, thank you for being a, a nonpartisan leader and a seeker of truth. We really do appreciate it. You, you've made this a lot of fun, and we're all wishing you the thank best. Thank you so much, Miles. Thanks for putting up with my COVID brain today. I know some of my English got messed up, but uh, I just I do appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks, Denver. We'll be in touch. And for listeners, we'd love to have you come back next week where we welcome former presidential candidate Andrew Yang. So stay tuned. Thanks, everyone.